And it's all a chasing after the wind. And he says, but then I saw that it was good and proper for a man to eat and drink and find satisfaction in his toilsome labor under the sun. Moreover, which God gives him the ability to enjoy that. So see, I think that such wisdom, and it goes back to vocation, that you have that freedom to find satisfaction in your toilsome labor under the sun, you know? Yeah. Maybe it's not so toilsome. Well, friends, this season of our lives, we're really interested in the idea of friends, old and new. We've been talking to people we've known for a long time. We've been talking to people that are friends that can help us to understand where we might need to rethink some things in our own lives. In this episode, we're glad to have you come along for a kind of like a happy hour experience. It was not kind of like, it was an actual happy hour experience. We were able to travel virtually through Zoom to New Mexico to be able to talk with our new friends, Lori and Cliff Lewis. Lori is a veteran DJ in Christian radio. We're going to talk with her about the contemporary Christian music industry, especially in its heyday that she was uh, really plugged into, and uh, some of the ways in which, by misunderstanding the nature of wisdom in life and vocation and the spirituality of our everyday activities that we sometimes fall into this trap, especially in religious circles, where people who are the talent, the creative folks within um, industries like music and art and education, we'll talk about how, on the one hand, these industries like contemporary Christian music are run like businesses from the top, but the talent, the artists, are expected to kind of... um, be selfless and uh, and are sometimes exploited for uh, their naivete and their spiritual optimism that things are going to just work out and that uh, they're just so happy to be signed and we'll be talking about that and tying it all together with just life. Lori's husband Cliff is best known for his work as a guitarist in the 80s hair band Femme Fatale and then later he got a PhD in physics. And then after being a DJ, we're going to learn a little bit about how Lori got into opera and how we can access that and how we can appreciate it. This is one of those shows where we're just doing long form, having a great old conversation. And uh, this is not a hard lesson that you need to take notes on, but rather grab yourself a beverage of whatever sort fits your lifestyle and sit back with us or maybe as you're driving or falling asleep. Just uh, be along with us as this continues our series with friends old and new. Let's go. I have been trying so hard to, to get a good conversation with somebody who knows about the contemporary Christian music industry and um, and that scene. And do, do you mind if we jump into that? Because I just I just want to pick your brain about it. Yeah, let's go for it. So, I got so, a lot to pick. She does. Yeah. So, like, so while Cliff, while Cliff gets into, you know, Cliff, Cliff gets into something that it, it kind of obviously makes makes sense. You know, if you're a high school kid, you're thinking, oh man, I want to be like, I want to be in that scene someday. Um, 
unless you're us, we grew up in evangelical Orange Countyville. And, and as much as m- my parents had, had come out to California from Colorado because they were hippies and they, they thought this was going to be like increasingly um, wilder and groovier. But in many ways, we ended up in Orange County and it was none of that. It was the Jesus freaks at all. By the time I got on the scene, they're all wearing Hawaiian shirts instead of, you know, whatever, you know, whatever they looked like before. And they kind of became the man, you know, like they, they were the, for, for me, these were now like kind of the, the folks who were, um, now these affluent, uh, suburbanites and, um, and Christianity was the religion of that. And the soundtrack was um, K Wave and, um, and Amy Grant. Amy Grant, right, right. <laughs> I worked so, at KYMS, which was the we know it well. Yeah, uh, which is no longer a Christian station. You know, they just somebody else took it over. Oh, long time ago, it's like a Korean station or something. Okay, <laughs> yeah, we don't listen to a lot of radio much anymore. But so, how did you get into that? So, how how did you decide that that was what you were going to do? That's an interesting question. If I could go back a little bit before actually, I grew up in the Chicago area and uh, there was the Chicago folk mass going on. If you're mm. familiar with that out of the Catholic church at the time. So was that like John Michael Talbot? Was that, was that um, he part actually, of that scene? A little before that there was okay. another Catholic priest. Um, huh. but, but it's, I would say it was very similar, you know, sound, which I really loved. It was great music. Um, and so my Lutheran church in the Chicago area started to do contemporary services, whatever. That's always a loaded mm. question or comment. Um, and so I was kind of primed for getting into Christian music because it was just like, but Mike, one of my teachers in Lutheran grade school gave me an Andre Crouch album, which just so you know, I love Andre Crouch to this day. I love gospel music. Mm-hmm. But there's just some philosophical and theological things that I have struggles with, you know, that we'll get into. But so I also then I all I wanted to do was be a Lutheran church worker as a little girl mm-hmm. um, through high school. I never thought about really anything else. Oh, I take that back. I wanted to run off to Broadway. <laughs> <laughs> They're kind of oh, similar. <laughs> Or I wanted to play third base for the Chicago Cubs, mm. um, which I, I think I could have done. Oh, yeah. You know? Probably easier for you to get into MLB than into, uh, into top-level church work in a conservative Lutheran denomination where women aren't necessarily yeah, yeah, <laughs> put that's, on the highest. Whew, that's a whole other show. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and I am, you know, I guess I'm a conservative Lutheran. I don't even know anymore yeah. you know, all the ups and downs I've been through. I do know that theologically I'm pretty conservative, but as they say, socially, I'm very open, you know? Um, And so anyway, back to the Christian music story, then my parents, I went to Concordia River Forest for just a couple years Mm. and I was in the deaconess program. I didn't really know what I wanted to do with my life. I thought I did, but also I think I was kind of depressed and I didn't really know you know, my direction in life, you know, which I think is what opened me up to all kinds of different things in my life. Um, it's kind of like the, oh, the Steve Taylor old song, he said, you know, you're so open-minded that your brain leaked out. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, you know, I kind of went on the waves and yet always at heart, I was a Lutheran as I went on this journey. So, 
um, at Concordia River Forest, you know, I, I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed the social time. I enjoyed the theology classes, but I dropped out, came to Albuquerque because my parents had retired here mm. and I didn't know what to do. And I kept hearing this radio station in town advertising, KLYT, K-Lite, and they said they would train you as a broadcaster for free. So I thought, well, I've, my whole life I've been in music and acting and, you know, all those kinds of things that would be make doing radio fairly easy, you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I did that and I started a journey, you know, into Christian radio last count. I think I've been at 13 different call letters, except no, I added two more after that. Uh, So, I mean, it's not like a little, I didn't have a little weekend job. Yeah. It wasn't a side thing. Yeah. Yeah. So you know it well, that's, I mean, that's, that's why your, your insights are going to be valuable here. There's, there's obviously, so much that you could you could kind of see about the about the the ins and outs of the industry but again like back to your own personal story so this was something that was an opportunity for you at first did you did you find it exciting was it was it what you had hoped it was or um yeah uh, i did there are aspects of it that I really like. I'm a really social person. Yeah. So I didn't like the idea of being in the studio for four hours by myself, but I really thrive when I have live guests or guests on the phone. Mm-hmm. Uh, that part I really loved. Um, and it's, you know, it's not a career or if you are a young person right now thinking of going to radio, <laughs> radio is not a way to go right now. Um, they can't, they're having trouble getting advertisers and you know, everything is about podcasting, like what you're yeah. doing now. So if you really want to do it, go into podcasting. <laughs> Makes sense. And make money at it or don't. I mean, there, <laughs> there, there are these, the thing is the kids, the kids know better than, than any of us. I mean, the business model, like even my, my youngest is just our, our consultant. He's listen there, guys. First of all, knock it off with these long things. Every day you got to get, you know, he, he knows the routine, but because the real thing for Aiden, my youngest who does the, the computer, computer science stuff, his podcasts, this is, it's absurd and it makes me angry, but I'm just going to go with it. Every parent's had a problem with their kids, you know, in, 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 in some previous iteration. Cliff, did your parents, were they upset with this, this long hair, heavy metal thing in your day? Or were they cool with it? They loved it. Okay, good. That helps. That helps. And they were sad when I went to physics because they liked to rock and roll. <laughs> that, that might be how I respond to my boys, you know. So, but but um, his but Aiden's Aiden's um, version of radio is watching nerds play video games and talk about their lives while they're playing video games. I just that just seems to be like I almost need to take you to a therapist now. But no, he's <laughs> like know, no, all, the, all everyone's doing that. <laughs> sense even from a radio perspective to me because they're they're hanging out you know it is right yeah and when i was in radio full-time i would think of it a lot as keeping people company you know i'm there kind of like you know i hate the djs who it's all about them and it's like yes you hear the sound of my voice you know Um, it's it's about connecting with the listener Mm -hmm. you know and and so he's doing it on a real you know basic level that's great Sometimes we're lonely, especially now, and and that's that's our our favorite our favorite kind of podcast. That's why we 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 uh, indulge ourselves in some um, probably bad habits. But but part of the thing we like, just to your point, we like drive time radio. And so for us, it's like some podcasts. We want to say, hey, it's a twenty you know twenty minutes. You're going to learn about the Vikings, and then you're out. And that's a probably a really valuable thing. Sometimes I'm just 
I got anxiety. I'm lonely. I'm trying to fall asleep. I'm trying to drive. And I want some voices to kind of feel like I'm, I'm not alone or, you know, I'm thinking about something. And, um, and so that, I mean, to me, those, those days, even if I laugh a little bit now about, you know, my listening habits in the eighties and nineties, uh, you know, Christian radio was kind of our, uh, that was our catechesis to use a, a religious term that was, uh, for, for good or for ill, the people that were on there in our case was a lot of Calvary chapel people. And there was the Bible answer man. And then there was music, right. That that was going to teach you what the, what this spirituality was, or this, this faith was I've known people in some aspects of the industry, like, like Salem broadcasting and things some family, some family members of those cats. But I am curious, how much did it, did it feel like, no, we're talking radio. Was it a job? Did people think of it more in a business sense or in a spiritual kind of like nonprofit business, uh, a ministry kind of sense? Depends on which side you were on. Mm-hmm. So if you were the owners and management, um, it's a business, but then they wanted us to think we're in it for ministry so they don't have to pay you very much. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> it's, like, yes. it's like Christian colleges. I'm telling you, it's yeah. the same thing. <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, that was a big confusion in Christian music in general. And that you don't know if it's, is this my vocation or my ministry? Everybody calls it a ministry. Mm. And it's like, it's really not a ministry. It is a business. If you're an artist and no matter how great you think your quote unquote ministry is, and you don't sell enough records, they're going to drop you. I mean, that's, it's a business. And I think artists went into it. There's so many aspects of this, but artists went into it really naively going, Oh, I'm going to, you know, help kids. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And it's like, yeah, you know what? Don't mention Jesus so much in your song. Okay. Cause we can't get crossover record, you know, radio play. Um, could you just make it sound more like a pop song, you know, and that kind of thing. So artists, I think we're, were very, always confused themselves. I know Amy Grant, one of the most famous, went through that herself, where she was like, well, she came to a conclusion finally that she's like, you know, I'm just a singer. I'm just an artist who happens to be a Christian, you know? So that was constantly a conversation in Christian music, um, that aspect of it. And then something I was telling Cliff just last night is people they grow up in a church and they look at Christian music, they tend to think it's all one voice. Mm. And what people don't understand is that this guy is a radical liberal Christian and thinks, you know, church is bogus. And this guy is a super Calvinist. And this guy Mm. is a word of faith guy. And this guy, there's no one voice in Christian music and there's no, there never was a standard theologically. Mm-hmm. So you could write complete crap. Now, few stations might not play it. Mm. And you might just have become a Christian and you're writing all this stuff that doesn't even make sense. But it's the number one radio hit in Christian music. Mm. Yeah. You know? well, you know, and it's interesting that you mentioned that because then I think of like with in our upbringing, especially, you know, my parents weren't, you know, super sticklers on, you know, Christian versus non-Christian music, but definitely there was this encouragement towards Christian music and, you know, it definitely stay away from certain secular music for sure. Um, but, you know, as you mentioned, it's all different theology, all different concepts of, of God and what does it mean? And so that is kind of interesting that church would have even 
impress that upon you know that it should be christian music in our youth groups and that kind of stuff given what you're just saying that's that's interesting we went to a church where they had this guy uh uh, the Al, Al Manconi and the Manconi challenge. And he challenged us to get rid of our secular music. And so what we did was we started to try to Christianize everybody. Mm-hmm. So we brought in Van, <laughs> Van Morrison as a, as a Protestant that counts. Um, you two. We yeah, were really happy. We could include you too. Keep you two in there. <laughs> oh, yeah. and, you know, that um, made us cool. Mm-hmm, that was the best we could get. And then, yeah. and then they cussed on rattle and hum. And then that was a big catastrophe <laughs> for us. But I'll tell you what, uh, we'd be burning. We'd be literally burning a uh, femme fatale, but I, I, I to apologize what we what we didn't do, we there were some there were some albums we kind of you know hide hide back you know like we're not going to burn our acdc baby or you know but um warrant we definitely we definitely burned warrant what, what, what really was was what could we what could we give to the gods <laughs> what, on, our, what, on our tape our, our tape burning day or or yeah. you know where you're pulling i mean out it wasn't it. a huge thing it was it was just like only a couple moments where i don't even know if some youth worker got a little out of hand it was not like we weren't growing up in uh, mississippi no but um but we did like they said bring your secular music we're going to destroy it and so all we did is we just said well what can we what can we spare which leads me to poison <laughs> i for some reason have never seen uh any you know th- there's like a few there's like a few celebrities that i'll see in la and i'll only see those people a lot so like danny bonaducci at 10 o'clock in the morning having eggs that's something that happens a lot <laughs> urinating and i feel I, I shouldn't actually say that but i started it uh, urinating and looking over and seeing cc deville has happened three or four times in my life it, it could be anywhere which takes me to this interesting question i heard this story and i don't know if there's any any way you could corroborate it but it, it kind of is the is the is the idea that i've been thinking about for a while about this kind of theme of of people that aren't really that engaged in christianity as as part of their own lives that are in christian music and then heavy metal musicians that are christians right so on the on the and then on the weird kind of middle ground is cc deville cc deville i understood auditioned to play in striper but he also auditioned to be in Poison, and he had a choice. He could only do one or the other. And it was like a toss-up. It's like, well, there's the Christian metal thing, and then there's, you know, there's this other glam thing, and, and they're both kind of the same. And what's, what's going to have longevity? You don't know, right? Sometimes it could take off. Um, but, uh, but the Christian ones, right, the, the interesting Christian cats would be um, – like I think Alice Cooper is like a youth pastor or something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in our program, I sometimes teach in this master's degree. We have, and I'm forgetting his name. It's not D- Dave Mustaine, but the uh, the bass player for, um, uh, no, uh, for um, uh, for uh, <laughs> Megadeth. Megadeth. Wow. He is gonna. He is training to be a Lutheran pastor. Oh wow! Yeah, <laughs> through, through through our master's program. So so you've got people that are in this world where. If you you couldn't even wear a T-shirt, you couldn't wear a Megadeth T-shirt and be accepted in in sometimes our evangelical circles. Right. Meanwhile, this guy's this guy's going the other direction, and I know a lot of Christian artists that are that are almost well, they resent having to like to sing and confuse their career with Jesus, you know, exactly. and they want to get out. So, so they don't have that separation of this is a vo- vocation really helps. Yeah. To understand vocation, you know. Say more about that. That's really important. Yeah, um, because again, growing up wanting to be a church worker and being a deaconess or doing something like that, you know, I was told, "Oh, well, if you're in radio, you're in ministry." You know, 
And then I saw that it wasn't, I, I, no, don't get me wrong. I understand church has business too. That's right. the thing, you know, but it's not quite the same. It's um, not monastic. Yeah. Yeah. And so um, when I really figured out that, that you just have this freedom, <clears throat> that it's your vocation, it's not a ministry, your vocation could be being, you know, a great grandmother, you know, and just encouraging your grandchildren and praying for the grandchildren. Or it could be being a physicist, or it could be being an opera singer or a professor. You know, you're, you're free to, you're a Christian within the midst of your vocation, um, but it's not a quote unquote ministry uh, where, you know, I'm not in, I'm not a clerical, you know, right. yeah. uh, where, where I'm distributing the, the gifts, you know, of the gospel. Um, and it's a freeing thing. And I think that very concept would have really helped the Christian music industry. If that could have been taught to artists that you're just free to go be the best artist that you can be. And if you happen to have a worldview, let's say this, uh, Dr. Veith, you know, oh, wrote yeah. a book um, where he talked about, you know, the honky, the gospel of honky tonk music or some um, crazy title like that. I remember you know? this. Yeah. yeah. I didn't read it. And I, I love that he talked about that in it. Cause he was like, um, you know, some of the secular musicians, their music spiritually actually ended up being more powerful yeah. than what we called Christian music uh, because you had all these constrictions, you know, you know, well, you know, taking it back to like the evangelical world that we all lived in, you know, that was too much of a guitar solo. We can't play that on the radio. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there wasn't, so artists were frustrated. They didn't have artistic license, right. um, but a Johnny Cash would. And it, it was just, it ends up being really honest you know, heartfelt, real music that way. I'm not saying some Christian artists didn't get into that area, but in general, it's very difficult to. Yeah. No, that's totally right. That's totally right. And, and I mean, I like how you went not so much just to like some theology, but to the guitar solo that there, there's a way my kids will say, you can, you don't need to know any of the lyrics. You can instantly know that a song's a Christian song and it could be even kind of poppy hip hop or soft rock or, or metal. There's just something that says somebody's watching me. I'm playing by the rules, <laughs> which isn't really rock and roll. Okay. Like that's my, that's the, I mean, in the sense of, you know, what, what is it to rock and roll? Right. So could you, but like, okay, so you don't want to bash it or whatever. I mean, we, obviously there's some great things going on, but, but I have this suspicion that there's a lot of poignancy. I've, I've, like uh, Derek Webb um, is a it was a Christian artist, um, and we saw him at this uh, Mockingbird conference in New York a couple years ago, and he just seemed to be really like sad <laughs> about try- like he's got these songs that people want him to play, and he's not feeling it anymore. anymore. He's grown past it. Yeah, and I know why? Why? I know why because you're in this world where maybe a few people get the gospel across. But it's generally we're constantly being preached the law in Christian music. Mm. And you don't, and you never the artist for a short time had to pretend like they were perfect. I don't know now. Mm. Right. But really, they're struggling with all the things that human beings struggle with. A lot of drug addiction, homosexuality, uh, things that they couldn't face within those confines of Christian music. 
And but they had to show us young people that their lives were going really great. They're really living for God. Mm. So it leads you as the person to go home and go, well, I know I'm not. I know yeah. I'm a sinner. And for me personally, and I can tell you lots of artists stories, I would cry myself to sleep. Because I'd be like, I'm not really a Christian. They were constantly in some way telling me I was not a Christian. Mm. I saw a lot of artists drop out of not only Christian music, but drop out of the church because of it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I was thinking with, with Derek Webb. I think there's like then there's that resentment that comes. And maybe what you're onto here is is really important for what we've been talking about in the last few episodes is or even a couple, you know, like a couple weeks ago, we talked about the height of insanity is. Oh, um, knowing so, like ignoring what you do know is the height of unhealthy thinking. Is is sort of idea, or you know. Um, so if they're un, if they're ignoring just their basic emotional spiritual reality, when you talk about law and gospel and and all of that, that is toxic to themselves. Right. So they're doing it because they've got a yeah. And so they're they're putting on the show for other people. But they're also like lying, lying to themselves and forced to do so. And then when they try to get out or you try to, you know, you try to do the crossover and it doesn't work, you know, and you find like other people like MC Hammer going to the religious scene to get to get a little bit more, uh, you know, get fewer, more venues. In my case, I'm a failed, failed musician, but we, we, we learned pretty early on before we were 21, the only game in town in Orange County was churches we couldn't play at bars so how am i going to hustle at 19 you're just not going to do it and then when we finally turned to 21 somebody booked us at uh the orchid remember the book all, all of our church <laughs> church lady friends showed up and it turned out that there was it was also like a uh bikini dancers between sets and so it was just a very odd <laughs> setup so because we just hadn't we just didn't know any of any of that world yeah. so so let me tell you jeremy dalton story yeah um, yeah, so this is a fun story, but I think it illustrates several things. So, and I have to say, by the way, that I was a Lutheran, really, and but I had to say a certain amount of things, like I had to embrace their eschatology, you know, their their end times, you know, philosophy, and and sort and this, of. Are you in San Diego at this point? Uh, or just, it doesn't yeah, matter when. Well, yeah, I was here. I was in Florida. Yeah. But it was like that, the rapture The rapture is a big deal. Thing, yeah, right. yeah, yeah. And I would be sitting there going, I just, I know because I took a lot of Old Testament classes that this is not what I believe, mm-hmm. but I have to. So, so I can understand artists in the same position. It's like you're, you're spewing a lot of things that aren't even what your personal belief is. So let me just tell you this funny little story. And I still have, just so you understand, I still have lots of Christian artists, friends. You make real friends. They're still friends, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's like, I have friends of every different kind of belief and persuasion in and out of the church. You know, Um, I don't judge my friends by that. I, I, I take friends who care about me and are good people, you know, um, and I care about them, you know, mm-hmm. so, but, so I set up this little concert. This was way back in the day. I was always trying to help people. And, and this one artist, um, said, well, I'm going to be in town for a little while. This is here in Albuquerque actually. And he said, uh, can you help me get some church gigs? And I was like, okay. I finally called up this big downtown church. I won't say the name of, and they said, yeah, let's have them come play for our youth group. And we get there. There were literally, he said, we have a big youth group. We have seven kids. They had seven kids. Oh, <laughs> wow. <laughs> in like the 
in the church uh, where they had the fellowship hall that was also a basketball court, you know, so the sound's horrible. And so it's a very conservative church, apparently, but the youth director didn't know that. And my friend, who just plays the piano and sings these nice ballads and stuff, he starts singing his songs, and he's like, the kids are starting to pay attention. And all of a sudden, the side doors of the gym burst open. Wham! And it's this guy, like a, like 100 years old. He comes running in. Stop the music! Stop the music! Because they were in there with their elders meeting and thought there was the devil's music. Yeah. They walked over and gave Jeremy... 20 bucks or something and made us leave, pack everything and leave immediately. <laughs> Gotta leave God's uh, house. We had to leave it right now. So then we're all sitting, we never even said a word. We got to this restaurant and we were all stunned. And finally, Jeremy, who's a really funny guy, he pulls out $2. <laughs> he goes, well, Al, here's your commission. <laughs> right? I like that. Uh. The, I have a thousand stories like that. It's just, it's, it's gotta a, be a weird world. Wacky world. You know, do you, did you ever hear, did you ever hear or run into this guy, Bill Gothard? Yeah. So I think part of that was that where it's like, even there was the problem of any, any, you know, like African demon drumming in a Christian song would also get you possessed. So you couldn't even be safe if it had the right dove label or something, you know, (laughs) just to take it to another extreme, a very, very famous Christian rock band. And now I'm not going to say names. Okay. Not. (laughs) Just keep going. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny that I got that. Yeah. <laughs> I got to edit See, that out. I, I can't. You got you to gotta take that out. Yeah, I will. Yeah. So, and I was sort of friends with the, the, one of the guys. I can't even remember now. I'm getting old. Uh, and I was in the dressing room. And I guess uh, drug sniffing dogs were coming down the hall. Oh, no. And, uh, well whatever his name was, mm-hmm. had to run to the bathroom and flush all of his drugs down the toilet. So, how about that one? Well, no, that's, I mean, so that's, that's what we assume, right? Like, it's, it's the same kind of scenario, but, but, uh, but they, they don't admit this to themselves or others publicly, right? I, I get that. Which then takes is that if you don't mind, if I just for, for a minute, Cliff, Cliff, how, how, how different is this from your world? Like, is it, is it, was it as crazy as we assume? I mean, you were there. I mean, no joke. You were there like at this legendary time of, of madness. So how much madness, you don't have to like, you know, confess your own <laughs> indiscretions. But. Well, he could tell you about when he lit his hair on fire. But yeah. Oh, wow. well, <laughs> what was that scene? What was, so this is in the secular like metal world. Yeah, to, to tell you the truth, stories that Laurie's told me about CCM, yeah, worse than stuff I would. Yeah. It's yes. actually worse. Yeah. yeah, I can't believe some of the stuff. Because at least in that world, they stab you in the front, not in the back. <laughs> right. Mm. You know what you're dealing with. Yeah. Well, but and also maybe this is just a hypothesis, but you know, you, you've got the same issues on the road, right? I mean, obviously. No matter what your what your chemicals are, anytime like Stacy and I have been doing like workshops or something and traveling around the country speaking, it's like not like in some crazy way. Like if I'm at a hotel and I'm and I'm jet lagged, I need to have some whiskey to go night night, and then in the morning I need to have extra coffee because of the whiskey I had to go night night. And so you know we're not that's not our normal lifestyle. But whether you're a Christian musician or you know you know singing the devil's music, you have these health issues but when you're not in the christian world you can have friends that say hey you know um i see you you know you're getting a little out of hand there 
And there's at least, you don't have the stigma or the shame for your network of friends to know what you're struggling with, which I would always assume that would at least make it a little bit better for your own ability to perhaps reach out. Is that fair enough, Cliff? I mean, is there any... I want to throw in that Cliff was on a major record label, just in case people didn't know, but MCA Records. Yeah. Big deal. So... And so, and so in that world, right, you got the similar kinds of things, but I mean, but no joke though, Cliff, right? There was a, there was a lot of cocaine and wildness in those, those worlds, right? Yes. (laughs) It's like, it's not like the movie, it's not that the movies are overplaying it. Yeah. (laughs) It was a decadent era. But we were too broke to afford anything. Mm. Oh, that's funny. So it just had to, somebody else had to be available. My my fear of my my fear of human beings and a lack of money has gotten me out of some some <laughs> sinful situations myself. That's good. <laughs> yeah, we didn't have enough money to get in trouble. Yeah, <laughs> isn't that right? I mean, is, that's probably true, right? So, some of the some of the real horror stories or some of the real you know wild situations come when there are these big tours with people with too much cash and they went from living in a studio apartment in Hollywood to uh, you yeah. know it's like forgetting where they live, you know, what city. So yeah. Did you like it though? I mean, was there was there a part of it that was just like when you're on stage, when you're playing, what was like what was the kind of the apex of Femme Fatale's flow? Like they, you guys were getting some heavy play on MTV, right? I remember that. Yep. Yep. And you toured you toured did, who you toured with somebody big. Cheap like trick. Yeah, you were doing the cheap trick tour. Yeah. So like when you're doing that, I mean, is it a rush? I always thought that Tell me what that feeling's like. You're up on stage. There's all those people. Yeah. I mean, they were huge through the Midwest, and we toured with them through. So we were playing, like, huge basketball auditoriums. Yeah. You know, so it's, yeah, it's just the, the adrenaline is just through the roof. It's the best thing. But then you the said, universe. then you said, all right, I love this adrenaline, and I'm, and I'm technically skilled. And then you get out of that, and you end up with a Ph.D. in physics. <laughs> What on earth was that move about? <laughs> <laughs> it's my rock and roll scientist. <laughs> yeah, so what attracted me to music was, you know, I was a songwriter, the creativity of it, you know. Mm-hmm. I loved being the artist side of it. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, but then when I burnt out on the music industry, mm. which happened when I turned 30, I tend to do things at round numbers of ages. That's good. Why not? I'll like reinvent myself. <laughs> it's great. So when I turned 30, I was like, I don't want to be 40 and 50 and still doing this. Because yeah. mm. by then the band had fallen apart because of egos. Mm. And I didn't really have enough energy to get anything else going. So I was just sort of existing out in L.A. Mm. Um, so anyway, I just decided to leave. I was going to, this was early 90s. I was going to go back to college and get computer science and music degree joint. Because I had a feeling this computer music thing was coming. Mm-hmm. They keep saying it. Yep. Yeah. And first physics class I took just blew me away. And I realized that physics was actually a very creative thing. Well, how so? Because I, I, have, I have some good biologist friends, but I, I would think that physics, how could it be creative? I mean, just these are the laws that have always been. There's nothing new here at all to see, just gravity. Um, and I'm being a little bit facetious, but give me, give me an example of how that might translate for us, the creativity of being a physicist. Yeah, because there's a lot of unsolved problems <sighs> that still exist. I mean, there's a lot of them. People try and tell you that we, we know everything about physics, but it's not true. I mean, there's a lot of unknown stuff. So the problem solving of doing that 
mm. in the language of mathematics is mm. really creative. In the, in the Middle Ages, they had this thing called the quadrivium. The, uh, it, once you got through your basic schooling, then you, then you got to what really mattered. And when I teach medieval history, students are always surprised. Like, why are these the big four that you study at, at basically college? Arithmetic, astronomy, music, and geometry. And that was what you do. That was the big deal. And, and the students just have a hard time sometimes thinking about the relationship between music and astronomy. And I would say astronomy is basically physics. And if you put physics and math, you know, it, we, for the medieval person, right, that's that same kind of mindset. And, and there's a, almost a mysticism to both where you're, you're, you're dealing with like the space between beats and the space between objects and how these relate and that you you get the re- the relationship between the notes and the relationship between these you know bodies with mass to your point it's easy to see like gravity and impossible to really understand what the heck's going on <laughs> right so like there's that all that space i get that man that's great yeah. and yeah. so what, what, what specifically did you get into when you were studying? I mean, physics is, there's a lot of things to be looking at. Yeah, I did my dissertation in chaos theory. Mm-hmm. you got to be kidding dynamics. me. No. That's Tell the rock and roll of, of science, man. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me the uh, title of your thesis. Boy, I don't remember. It's uh, synchronicity. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> yeah, is, issues in chaos synchronization and chaotic light wave communication. So basically I put that in the lay person's terms. It's like they, he had two lasers that were all goofed up and he got them to talk to each other. That's really cool. <laughs> That's translation. And, you should be in the corner of the screen. <laughs> and, um, and then you say you teach, you teach, teach a little bit. Do you teach? Yes. Big data. Yeah. So yeah, when I got into industry and my jobs, I got in heavily into signal processing, data analysis, um, because I had all the math tools to do it. Mm. And uh, and chaos theory is very data heavy. Mm. Um, They say that chaos theory was was only enabled as a uh, field of study because of the computer. Mm. It It was a guy in the late 50s that found he was modeling the weather. And he found that it, he, that's the first chaotic system that was discovered. I did not know that. Yeah. So, yeah, it's interesting. So they say, uh, so chaos is identified by what they call sensitivity to initial conditions. So <laughs> the butterfly effect, have you heard Keep of going. That? Keep going. The butterfly effect. Yeah, yeah. Butterfly flapping his wings in Brazil causes a hurricane in Florida. Yep. You know, mm-hmm. so it's mm-hmm. like the small change of initial conditions from the butterfly causes a huge change. So that's like, chaos. Like ripples that grow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's like that's you couldn't have gotten into a more interesting, philosophically interesting yeah. aspect of science. I think I, I think a lot of young people, you know, say don't have the opportunity to realize. And this goes back to what Laurie, you were saying about vocation, that not only is it that there's there there could be creativity in other areas of life you don't just have to go into music to express that part of your life you could you could but you don't have to and in some ways somebody who's going to be a musician might actually be kind of more of a of a a jukebox right i mean just you don't know for sure what that what that's going to look like and so by understanding our lives more in terms of vocation and the spirituality 
behind that, you can kind of, you can see like cliffs and like, you know, getting me all excited about thinking about, yeah, like, like how this, how this all fits together and, and what it, what it says certainly for, for us when we're looking at the Tao Te Ching, for instance, which I think is a, what we found really interesting about this with Chinese philosophy is how much mathematics fits into their contemplation of um, what we would think of as more like philosophy and spirituality. Um, and that we, when I grew up, you kind of separated it out. For me, it was like, you're gonna le- we're going to learn how to build good bombs to, to stop the commies, and that's the only thing good about science. It's just purely functional, right? As opposed to something that is, is kind of like our, our ministry, if we want to use it in a small case, you know, small M. Yeah, small M. Yeah. But, well, I wanted to tell this story when we did go to a certain Calvary Chapel. Um, <laughs> Cliff was in school studying physics, and he was playing in the worship band, you know, because, um, you know, he was a rock star. So they had to snap him up. Oh, they did have to. <laughs> Too much. <laughs> <laughs> and he had just become a Christian. So it was like overwhelming. But um, so he told some guy that he was studying physics. And the guy's like, what do you want to do that for? How are you going to serve God with that? Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and science, you know, it's like, well, we, d- we, we were tr- taught in some ways not to really trust the profession because they were all out to, you know, out well, to get us. That's the other question is, did, like, did you find things in your studies that really kind of conflicted with your views of Christianity when you were studying? Well, or, no, I, and, and I, now? Tell, I tell people I've, it's, it, has, it has not happened once. Mm. Mm. Yeah, no, it's, it's not a conflict at all. Huh. I do find that more physicists say that than say psychologists and biologists because they yeah. think they can explain human behavior. But but when you see, like, I, I've 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 thought like, what does God look like? He kind of looks like a fractal. <laughs> <laughs> like, I mean, if, if you, but what what? Tell me a little bit more about that. Like, so when you when you think about physics and you think about spirituality and 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 faith, um, where are the resonances? Where where are those connections? that seemed to fit. Yeah. I just view physics as how God chose to enact this universe. You know, Mm -hmm. these are the laws God put in place to run the universe. And we get to, we get to research them and figure them out. Yeah. Which in that sense is kind of like an act of worship then, right? Like this is what the, the the late medieval guys, they said, you know, I forget who said it first, but it's like, you're thinking God's thoughts after him. So when God, God created the world with these, with these physical um, properties and, and um, the the way things behave, and that is God's art, you know? And so you're, you're kind of interpreting it. You're understanding it. I get that. That's good. Yeah. 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 You're sort of figuring out how, yeah. Well, you you said that in your um, acknowledgement in your thesis. My dissertation, yeah. I love the line that he said. He said, um, thank you to Jesus Christ who allows me to study that which is his own. Mm. And I thought that, is, that was so beautiful. And by the way, that's the only thing I understood in the end. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm right there with you. As soon as we hit the table of contents, forget it. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so yeah, I was able I was able to edit Jeff's dissertation mainly because I didn't understand it, so I could I was just doing for the grammar parts and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> I get that. So um, so when we think about yeah, what motivates all of our lives and our choices and professions and so forth, back to the the Christian contemporary Christian music scene, where where is the money made? Like what? 
Well, What's on the strings. One thing, one thing, and Cliff can verify this from secular music too. One thing that uh, artists don't understand. I, I want to start with this: is that when you make an album for two hundred thousand um, dollars, that's a loan to you. Yeah, mm. you have to earn that money back through record sales before you start earning any money. By the way, you know. So, like, even one video Femme Fatale did was like two hundred fifty thousand oh, yeah. dollars. I mean, you production know, cost just for that. Yeah. Um, so concerts, especially now, well, before COVID, I should say, yeah. uh, concerts is where artists make money because um, the record companies generally, they, they love to sign young artists because they don't know enough and they'll just be like, oh my goodness, I'm just so glad to sign any contract. Yeah. Sign all their rights away, you know, oh, yeah. or all their uh, royalties and everything. And the record companies, and that's one thing I saw a lot of Christian artists get burned out on is, you know, they just trusted everybody. I, I did that a lot in my life. Or you just go, well, they're Christians. I'll trust mm -hmm. them. You know? Well, the truth is, in the 80s, I can tell you the whole history of Christian music, but that's when secular companies were buying up Christian record companies anyway, because uh, Christian music was making more at that point than classical music and jazz music combined. Mm. So the, those guys just want to, that's all. They're, they're just in the business to make money. They don't care about art. They don't care about the artists. You know, you'll know some really famous bands that hardly ever made a penny, you mm. know, yeah. uh, because they just thought, Oh, I'm doing this, you know, my musical expression. Well, that's all it is. You know, you may as well do it most of the time at home for free, you know, yeah. mm. It's going to be awfully hard to make money unless you're one of that one percent, you know. Yeah, the record company makes uh, eighty-eight percent. They basically give you twelve, mm. so they they survive on the the few really big hits and just count all the others as loss, you know. So wow. so they're it's sort of like the old throw the throw against the wall, see what sticks mentality. Right. I mean, there's there's one Christian music label that Lori's very familiar with that uh, they would just, you know, people would send them their demos. They would just press them and release them with no contract wow. or anything. Wow. <laughs> after all that, you, you know, was it after this that you became an opera singer? Oh yeah. Well, after that. Yeah. So you I, went, you went deep. I mean, so, so as, as Cliff's getting out of the game, you are going, you're going into arias why opera? How did that come about? Yeah, I think it was always sort of floating around in the back of my head. Well, one thing is, is I was a musician, you know, growing up. Um, I just belted songs. I sang everywhere, played guitar, you know, and did that stuff, right? Um, and then radio kept me close to music, um, but it wasn't doing music, and you want to create music, you know? So after we got married, I dropped out of radio for a while, and I just thought, what do I want to do? We went to see Pavarotti in, in concert in San Diego. Beautiful, yeah. And I was like, you know, I grew up singing Bach, you know, and some classical music, right, because being a Lutheran. Mm -hmm. uh, and I thought, I, I want to sing opera, and I'm Italian. I'm half Italian, and I'm from Chicago. It's just sort of always there, you know, because my grandpa was walking around singing O Sole Mio, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so I just, uh, after that, I just looked for a voice teacher and she said, yeah, you sh should be singing opera. Um, as I had this big, ginormous, out of control voice. And by the way, it's bigger now and hopefully a little more controlled. Um, so it just seemed to, to fit. 
And then just, oh, it's the, it's the most expressive music for me. You know, yeah. I put, you know, heavy metal, gospel music with those big, huge voices and opera. They all give me sort of the same, you know, level of rush. You know, I, I'm not a big person on like, I don't want to insult anybody here, but like the Carpenters or something, you know, it's like, it's like to me, it's like this elevator music, you know, right. it's like, I want something that's going to be taking me to the highest heights musically, you know, <laughs> I, that makes sense. They saw the, cause, cause you know, the big voice that is, it's not just about being loud. I mean, I think this is the thing that's, you know, to really appreciate what metal, what metal can be, um, to, it's like there is something it's it's um it's it's kind of ancient <laughs> you know it's like the way the way we would do it you know as a community around the fire or something and just howling but then but then the artfulness of being able to really then dial that in and bring it bring it together i think that that would have to be a phenomenal experience when you're hitting your notes when you're really feeling it do you is it is it on a scale of like you know the top 10 things is it is it in the top 10 and just in terms of feeling oh, yeah. I'll never forget my first opera. Here's the funny thing is, is I was in more operas than I had seen. You know? <laughs> so people think, oh, you're like a musical snob. It's like, no, I, I seriously went into opera when I was 46. You know, it was a new thing. To Late have. in the game. Yeah. 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 And all of a sudden I'm in AGMA, the union for opera singers, which I didn't know was hard to do. Mm. <laughs> and in the first six months of singing, I had a lead role at San Diego State in the Tenderland, and then all of a sudden I was in Turando in San, with San Diego Opera, a top 10 opera company. Mm. Um, so I think I was sort of born to sing opera, but I'll never forget the opening night. Turando is awesome because the chorus is a character, you know, and you're, you're hearing the orchestra warm up and you're on stage in place and the curtain opens and there's how many people in the civic theater where there are thousands, you know, yeah. maybe 5,000 or something. And you're, it's like, you're in a great work of art. It's like you're in a famous painting or something. And okay. All my life, I had the biggest voice of any around me. All of a sudden, there's 200 male opera voices standing next to me, all singing just magnificently. And I, I can almost hardly sing because I'm surrounded by this gorgeous sound and the orchestra and trumpets out of the balconies. And it's like, yeah, it's like you went up to the seventh heaven cloud right. or something. Yeah. I could only imagine we, we sometimes let those moments, you know, get by, but I'm, I'm really grateful that you could recount those because it's, you know, that's, that's the great thing about life. Every once in a while, those moments, I want to, I want to understand <laughs> opera. I really do. I don't know where to start. How do I, how do I get started so that I can kind of dip my toe in the water and start to appreciate the genre? Opera wasn't snobbish in Europe. Mm. You know, uh, in fact, in Italy, which is a blast, uh, they would have fist fights in the audience. I mean, this was like the popular music of the day. You know, it was like going to a rock concert. Yeah. You know? um, but in America, when it got to the Metropolitan Opera and all the rich people decided, you know, like the Rockefellers and all the, you know, the J. Paul Getty and da 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 da, they wanted to do it as a place to show off all of their riches, basically. They would go. Opening night, no, of course, you always have to get there late, and they would show up with all this jewelry on and their furs and their ball gowns. That's how that started. Mm. That's not what opera was meant to be. Opera is just, it's like musical theater in another language. 
me, the technique is different. And you have to learn to understand opera voices. There's everything from, you know, a little tiny pipe fluty voice like Natalie to say to Dolores Zajic, who is the biggest female kind of voice in the world. And by the way, I've sat like five feet from her. And when she sings, I can sing powerfully, but that's, she's one of the top singers in the world. It's like, it goes right through you. You feel this, yeah. you feel the energy of this voice. You know, yeah. there's nothing. And, and the thing is, is opera singers are on stage without microphones doing that. Okay. Yeah. You have to understand they're singing over a hundred people and an orchestra into three stories or four story, five story balconies. Right. So you have to start out with some things that are poor, more familiar to your ear. Right. Cause you can't go from pop music to Dolores Ajit. <laughs> I, I did as a singer, but, you know, I think musicians hear things and see things a little differently. But if you're a person who's not really a musician, you know, there's a reason why La Boheme is one of the most popular operas in the world. Because it's joyful. Well, yeah, of course, everybody dies at the end in the opera. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> they, <laughs> die least, <joyfully. laughs> they die joyfully. They die joyfully. But there's kind of Christmas scenes and they're in Paris. And they, they did the musical Rent based on... La Boheme, mm. you know, so you, you want to listen to albums or CDs or on um, Spotify or something before or listen to greatest hits opera CDs. You know, it's like get familiar with the sounds and, and decide what you like. It opened up this massive world to me of all kinds of music, you know, that I didn't know. I didn't even know existed, you know. So mm-hmm. one last thing is people tell me all the time, they're like, they, they think I'm snobbish now about opera. Mm-hmm. And I'm not. It's like I grew up with pop and belton songs and rock and roll and like everybody else and offers a new discovery. So really, in effect, they're sort of being reverse prejudiced by saying that, you know, they're not because I'll say, well, they'll say, I hate opera. Well, have you ever been to an opera? No. Hmm. I I don't know how you know you hate it then. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of people that hate things, right? That they've never tried yeah. or experienced, that's for yeah. sure. But, um, but I, from what you're saying, I would imagine though that, that that magic of being in the space and hearing it live really is where I think it all really comes together. I When we yeah. were... We went um, to we were in Spain and we went to flamenco. Like I understood. Yeah, I would that. add that metal, opera, and flamenco right. and gospel. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But You've you been getting into the flamenco. To, yeah, to be able to be there and experience and, and just experience it with you know the the folks that are putting it on and and just bringing that magic alive and and, and that energy into the room. You know that's. Which is something we'll do twice as often as we would listen to it in our car. So we're not going to listen to a lot of flamenco, but if, if, if you know, if we're in yeah, Spain, we're going, yeah. <laughs> or if, if it's anywhere nearby or something, yeah. And I exactly. challenge people to turn on a television set and go through an afternoon or evening of listening and not have heard an opera song, an opera aria in the background of a commercial. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Opera's all around us. Mm-hmm. And, coming from a metal background... You should go listen to Verdi's Requiem. Okay, well, this is funny, you should say. Um, <laughs> yes. When we got married, we were having a little fight with our DJ and my in-laws or whatever about um, 
music you know the music for, for the, the wedding, wedding you know <laughs> so um so we had uh, the we had the adidas era come out as we came out instead of whatever we were supposed to do for our, our 70s ABBA song or something. Instead, it was... I mean, that one... That was how we walked into our wedding reception. <laughs> but you are right, my man. That is the most metal... That is the most metal vocal performance from... You know, I don't remember yeah, when he, so that, It's a yeah. concert piece, but it's done by opera singers. We yeah. need to go back to that. Yeah, <laughs> it's but, been a while. Listen to the whole thing. <laughs> yeah. You don't have to just listen to the DSA, right? Right, right. That's good music for my voice, too. Oh, I mean, it is. Oh, I would love to. Oh, my gosh. You got it. This is what I, I have this dream for you. I can imagine you're going to be, you guys are going to be sitting there. You're going to be toasting in your new, in your new place in, 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 Hawaii. in Hawaii. You can go sit <laughs> under some kind of little grotto and you're going to just, and you're just going to belt that. You just get that Verity going. You just sing that and you just welcome yourself to that new island. Hey there, friends. In our travels across the U.S., we have found a website that we absolutely love. It's called Harvest House. Could you imagine camping overnight in a vineyard, distillery, brewery, or a golf course all to yourself? We've been doing it, and it is absolutely magical. If you go to our website, protectyournoggin.org, you'll find a link where you can sign up and get 15% discount on the annual fee. We think it'll put a smile on your face, and you can help support the podcast at the same time. All you need is an RV or camper with a toilet and cooking facilities, and you can stay all around the country for free. We hope you dig it as much as we do. Check it out. My dad, one time, he paid me. He said, I will buy you a new guitar if you cut your hair. You look like a girl. Stop this. <laughs> and we're in high school. Right? For, for COVID, my my entire family has gone all Samson. We have, we said, well, we'll when, once COVID's over, we'll go back to our, our stylist that we like. And now it's, now the bosses are getting, getting a little mad. I'm, I'm getting a little too much here. The kids, <laughs> the kids my, my oldest is a, is a, in food service. They just shut that down. So he doesn't have to cut his hair anymore. So we're, we're getting like a little raggedy, <laughs> but there was a time when, when a gentleman cliff, I, I just remember back in the day when you were rocking, you really, you, you really couldn't do it without, without the good main. Tell no. me about this. How, how, how hard was it to maintain that classic, that classic do? It was actually really easy. What? You just don't cut it. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, like, like just, the conditioning and the uh, tangles, and how do you get it to, you know? Okay, yeah. Spray. That, <laughs> uh, Aquanet pink. <laughs> Aquanet. You're saying it's not that, that hard. Strong. Are you saying it's not that hard? <laughs> you just well, yeah, so, so you know cc deville right yeah yeah yeah. you're taking him and we were contemporaries we were managed by the same company really and, uh, so his hair you yeah know, that's what we all had i know it's done with aquanet pink can so you just is you it just, probably the extra hole you just pull it something? up and just blast it is what you're saying yeah, you tease hole. the crap out of it spray it with that stuff i mean i would <clears throat> i would wake up in the morning and it would be flat where my <laughs> but the rest was still there. Pillow. You just take a pick, pick it back out, you're ready to go. <laughs> when did you give it up? Um the hair. Graduate school. He halfway gave it up. All right. Yeah. He had it about this long. I had long hair when we got when married. When we got married, yeah. he was down to his shoulders and his natural color. 
because it's always fun to see it's always fun to see a guy like in laguna beach or something just go into the restaurant and he's got that same hair and you're like is, is he in a cover band is he just saying i am not letting this style go because i love it so much yeah. every time we see somebody like that i always go to cliff is it still 1984 you know yeah <clears throat> but sometimes i mean yeah i mean or or you know if it's i don't know deep purple or something so there's always there's always a t- there's always a time when it's not a bad idea to have just to you know keep if you're if you're still touring it, it like the coach house and stuff but but you then you then have like to worry about this you're walking around as a hazard you're like you, this is not safe for a human being to have that much chemical on their <laughs> most prote- most precious part of your body basically your, your head so no. did you ever have any trouble with this thing cliff yeah the, the hairspray is very flammable did you ever like do it on purpose? Did you ever do pyrotechnics on purpose with the, the hairspray? Uh, yeah, we were at, we were at a club in LA, weekend night, super crowded. He would know it. Maybe. Um, oh, Lake Express. Yeah, on Ventura Boulevard, <laughs> over in the right on the Valley side. So, now, I was eight probably when this happened, but yeah. I. <laughs> <laughs> so we were getting up to leave, you know. And I went to light a cigarette and. Grabbed the matches off the table, and they were like super sulfur matches or something. <laughs> so I went, ksh, ksh, had bangs in my face. So I went to light it. The flame like shot up. Oh, no. It just went like like wildfire. Boom! Like just ignited. <laughs> oh, man. That's so what terrifying. did you do? Waitress was like standing at our table, and she like, your head. She started hitting my head and put it out <laughs> with her hand. Wow. And then how long did it take it to grow back? But, well, it, might, it have, uh, might have involved a little drinking, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> we um, always deny that part. But I put my hair out. Me and the guys in my band ran into the bathroom laughing. And I was like pulling like ashes out of this. Oh, bathroom. my gosh. Yeah. But the worry, the, the thing was like, so when we were trying to grow our hair long, because we were like tailing well behind you cats. Um, we, we, a lot of us dudes, we were starting to take prenatal vitamins so that we could get our hair to grow. We thought that was going to make our hair grow thicker and faster. <laughs> I don't know who told us. There's always, I mean, look, we're, there's no internet. You know, we're playing crappy music in a garage. We got to get our hair long. And it's like, you know, you can't do this <laughs> without the hair. So no one seemed like, oh, no, the hair's. Did you ever wear a wig? No, like the, the yeah, that's no good. The, the, don't, don't don't be looking like Spinal Tap, not I, that. I remember um, one of the years of going to camp, and they warned us that that kind of hairspray in the freezing cold would l- have our hair break off. Did you have ever, ever have anything like that happen? Yeah, you did have to get get it trimmed because you <laughs> breaking, and then it would actually get shorter. Mm-hmm. Then you right. cool. Give us one more. Give us one more rock and roll story. Come on. Okay. So this one, you sort of have to know my style. My main instrument was keyboards, piano. But in the 80s, there wasn't a lot of call for piano keyboards. So I also knew how to play guitar a little bit. So mm. I played guitar he most He plays of. well, but... Yeah. Well, I wasn't like... I couldn't... I wasn't a lead guitar player. Right. Do that, that hail and eruption thing. That I couldn't... Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So the so last song in our shows... You know, the singer would introduce everybody, you know, yeah, on drums, you know, and he'd do like a solo, you know, guitar player would do a solo. And when it would come to me, I, I wasn't at the level where I could do a guitar solo. So my stage presence was like very, uh, 
big. Sort of like, well, put it this way, Robin Zander, cheap trick. Yeah. <laughs> watching us, and he called us Cabaret Rock. Because <laughs> we were just like very <laughs> running around, jumping, spinning, you know. Yeah. So you made up, you made, you did the theatrics. The showman. Yeah. <laughs> so, so when they introduced me, I would just start doing the Pete Townsend windmills. I'm like, bam, bam. And I'd start spinning around while I was doing it. <laughs> that's, that's a good move. That's a, yeah. that's a good trick. When in doubt. Yeah. And then I'd stop and then I'd fall down, you know, the, all the, the audience loved it. Yeah. That guy's good. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it worked. So, yeah. um, so we were, and then we started getting record company interest. And so we were doing showcases for the record companies. And this is all like just sunset. Uh-oh. Oh, what? okay. I thought it froze for a sec. Oh, um, this is all sunset, the Hollywood days, you know. Yeah, Hollywood, yeah. Mm. Hollywood strip, that big sunset strip. Yep. I, again, I was too young to be allowed in any of those, but we know it well. It's legendary. Oh, well. <laughs> um, so we were doing a showcase for a record label. Which means you go into a big sound stage, you set up, and you have to do your show as if there's audience there, but there's no audience there. But you have to have an energy. <laughs> and it's sort of like pre American Idol. Yeah. Record company guys would be sitting back in the dark, mm. couldn't even see them. Mm. So you were basically playing to nothing and had to do your show like you had energy. So when it came time to do our last song, we did introductions just like normal. And then the singer introduced me. I started doing my windmills. <laughs> Probably not as effective <laughs> in this context. Oh, I was giving it all I had. I know. I know, <laughs> but I mean, I'm saying. <laughs> well, I, I don't know. If you're sitting there, you might be awfully bored if you're one of these you know, people watching all this stuff, right? People so you throw probably stuff brought you. Bringing, bringing the theatrics is probably <laughs> somehow all of a sudden waking them up. Yeah. You got to hear the rest. So it's like. Yeah, this never happened when we were playing live, but for some reason, this one time when I was doing my spins, my guitar cords started wrapping around my legs. Oh, no. Like, like I was like a maypole. You know? I understand uh, fully. Uh-huh. And I was like, I, did, I stopped. I was like, oh, <laughs> yeah, I didn't know what to do. So I <laughs> fell down like I usually did. And my guitar cords, king, amp stack. Oh. My cord just like sheared off. And so, Dang. so you got, you got, so I got up and just pretended like I played the rest of the song. Even though I didn't even have an amp. You know? so, well, that's, that wasn't so you're like the Pratt, you're like, you're the Pratt fall guy. They're like, all right, <laughs> when in doubt, like this is like Chevy Chase. Like, let's, let's get some. The guys that's, are like, did they well so how did they how did they would they how did they respond to your you yeah, know they didn't sign us <laughs> <laughs> the dude, the dude got tangled up he lassoed himself with his own guitar cord I love that so yeah story. phd physicist but not too bright all right? not big. <laughs> so me and the bass player roomed on the road we actually toured england so we were in england and we'd never seen a stock mini bar before so he got the idea <laughs> and I went along with it, but he was like, Hey, if we pull out all the bottles, drink the ones that are in the back, then put them back in and put the full ones in front of it. And they'll never know. They won't charge us. We'll get it all free. Like, yeah, let's do it. You know, ching, 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 ching. 
<laughs> when we were when we were checking out, our road manager comes up to us and goes, "What did you guys do?" <laughs> had a six hundred dollar mini bar. <laughs> wow! <laughs> what? <laughs> so we fessed up. So what happens is every time you pull a bottle out, it charges you. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. And they put it back in, they charge us again. Ching, 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 ching. You can't, you can't put it past those yeah. Brits. Every once in a while, they pull something bright like that. Yeah. We, when we were living out there in England, we, we realized, yeah, like you, they, you can't, there's, you can't get, get away with a lot. They've been around for several centuries. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and the road manager was British, right? Yeah. <laughs> Will. His name was Will. He had, uh, <laughs> he had been the road manager for, ah, who was that? Big Ben. Michael Schenkner was in it. Um, I don't remember, but yeah, that that was another one. We, uh, we, uh, when we drink a lot, we would do what we call collages, which basically means you take in the room and pile it on top of each other, like furniture or whatever. Hotel. So we started doing that. that It might've been the same hotel in England. Um, You're kind of supposed to do this within, you know, within. There's Not a all people. Just, I don't know if you watched the Motley Crue movie. Oh, I did. Yeah, that was something <laughs> else. The part where they were like running through the halls. Like, yeah. Oh, in their underwear. Yeah. That's sort of what it was like. It was like that. Watching that movie, I said to myself, I was always on the kids, the kids' side, but then I said, oh man, if I was a parent, I'd be saying, hey, don't listen to that rock and roll. Those kids are up to no good, man. <laughs> Those yeah, boys were up to no good. <laughs> we started grabbing everything we could find in the hotel hallways, putting it in an elevator. <laughs> we were building a sculpture in the elevator. Oh, wow. Stuff, bam, bam, bam. And so my bass player takes this fire extinguisher. He's running down the hall with it. And he throws it in the elevator, starts going off. And then right there, somebody called the elevator. Ching. Close it out. <laughs> the elevator went off. So somebody had the elevator open up on him with the Wow. <laughs> oh, so how how much did you rack up in just cleaning fees and stuff? <laughs> Remember. I think the road manager just took care of it. it yeah. Like... Part of the loan, right? <laughs> when you when you think about the people that you've um like you've met like like I'm thinking the kind of celebrities, um is is there anybody that surprised you about how really cool they were? Like you said, well, that person comes off, maybe has has this persona, but they're really really swell people. Or if you wanted to, you could also tell, tell us somebody who's dull trash. <laughs> uh, but just surprises. Yeah, Alice Cooper came off that way because you know because he had the whole. You know, morbid Isn't theatrical that, is that where stage you got show. The TV from? Yeah, he I actually, played on an Alice Cooper song. What? <laughs> yeah, I actually played. So the guy, I'm gonna after this, we're gonna go. We're gonna go blast it at home. My <laughs> my friend Scott is gonna love this. Which track? So Alice Cooper did a remake of Under My Wheels with Guns N' Roses. Under my wheels, honey. 
and it was used in the movie Decline of the Western Civilization Part 2. I've seen that. <laughs> Another reason not to let your kids get into <laughs> heavy metal. <laughs> That's, that was about our era. Yeah. yeah. Um, so the guy who produced our record was traveling around with Alice Cooper trying to get this while they were touring, trying to get this recorded. Mm-hmm. And they did get the keyword parts and the background vocals done. So he called me up. And so I went in and sang and played organ on this song. But he didn't get credit. I didn't get credit. Oh, it's no good. That's terrible. Stop that. But you got a television. (laughs) I'm sure you're still using that, right? He got a TV from Alice (laughs) Cooper, and it had a little uh, bronze. Had a plaque on it. Plaque on it that said Um, something something to watch your favorite splatter. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, because of the. But are you saying, but you said you liked him or you didn't. Yeah, and then we met him at the premiere of the movie. Yeah. He's cool. Super, yeah, super cool. And just took time and talked to us and, you know. Yeah. That is what they say. That is yeah. what I hear. Yeah. So he's, he was nothing like his stage persona. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think he's like a, you know, demon come to life or something, you know. <laughs> In radio, I've met a lot of, um, you know, famous singers and people who, a lot of times I had crossover with the Christian world, like Philip Bailey mm-hmm. you know, from Earth, Wind and Fire. And then he did Christian albums. And so, you know, I got to interview people like that. He was really sweet and humble. Um, and I have a lot of like stupid celebrity stories. Those are my Give us at least one. Give us at least one. Well, I was going to tell you my John Warwick Montgomery story. I. <laughs> okay. I, a good one. Well, I have two really fast. The first one was when I was at KYMS. Uh, for a while, he was coming in the studio and recording his show. Mm-hmm. I already had at the time, and then Hank. Amber. What was this? That was the you. You were there at KYMS. Boy, this is this is this is like eight. It's like eight, eight interviews. You were at KYMS when when Bible Answer Man was with Montgomery. Is that yes, what you're saying? That's right. He came in the studio, and here's my favorite story about him: is that who I was ever engineering the board. Um, Montgomery got feedback in his headphones and he started getting really mad and he started saying, I'm going to sue this station. I'm going to sue this station. Sue. Probably for his he's loss, of, loss of hearing, right? No, no, well, he's a lawyer. Yeah. <laughs> he, like he's embarrassed. Yeah, I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised. We we had dinner with him one time and everyone's going around like, you know, talking about like, you know, stories about Montgomery and his life. And I said, I really don't I don't know him that well at all. I uh, I did read something where he was saying that um, that uh, that ESP might work, not ESP, um, telekinesis might work with um, dice. So we went to Vegas and I started, started winning some money. So he didn't necessarily, I think, appreciate that that was the point of his life's work was to get me to play good you know, craps. Okay, so this one is all the way back to when I was 20 years old. My first one, my favorite story about him. Um, oh, and by the way, once I called in when he was on the Bible Answer Man when I was in Flagstaff on a station, and I thought it was so cool because he was Lutheran and I get to talk to this you know, Lutheran talk show host. Uh, this isn't the story, but I just remember this part too. And I said... Oh, what about the, you say Lutherans are so ethnocentric and da 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 And he said, well, I said it in my book. <laughs> so that's all I got to get out of the air with him. So that leads me to then when I was at River Forest, it would have been probably like 1980, right? I was like 20. Yeah. And, you know, I was like, I'm always outspoken and I'm not shy. I don't have a shy bone in my body, you know? And I was like, 
the student representative to the theology department or something as a freshman. And, you know, I was like, I screwed up on everything else except I got A's in all my theology classes, man. (laughs) So um, Dr. Schrieber, Dr. Hine and Dr. Shibley were the, like the main theology professors. And they were like, um, okay, you know, we're bringing this Dr. Montgomery to the campus and he's going to speak and he's coming to all our classes and blah, blah, blah. So, you know, I, I didn't really know who he was, you know, and um, I was kind of, a, you know, maybe, you know, you know, you're 20 and you're a know-it-all. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so they invited me with all the pre-SEM students. I got to go to the breakfast before he did the rest of the day. And all the pre-SEM students were sitting there like this because it was pre-breakfast, you know. And I'm like just asking him questions and I'm talking, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I'm all into archaeology already and all this stuff. And I said, you know, I hate today how they popularize archaeology, you know. He's just sitting there watching me, you know. And I said, especially those books like In Search of Noah's Ark. And all of a sudden, I see my professors all go like this. I can't remember it. I just was talking. And he goes, I'd be careful if I were you. Because he did. I once went. I was that book. They based that movie on my book, and I said, "Let me rephrase that." <laughs> <laughs> and I got tortured on campus. Oh my goodness! I by all the theology professors, and they all started cracking up, <laughs> and they like were like, "We're gonna lock, lock Lori in her room next time." There's a special. Day. And then when he got up to speak at chapel, he said, "I would like to thank Lori Campbell for being our gracious hostess this morning." <laughs> <laughs> And then he got into my theology classes, and then it was like, oh man, he teased me unmercifully. Mm. And he finally told me, he goes, that's okay. I didn't like those movies either, and I'm going to sue them. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's good. that's a good way to bring it back around. But it's funny because you're this young, you're this young lady, and you're totally right, and he knows you're right. Right. I mean, he knows you're right. And then he had to come around. That's all right. That's good. But that's also what that's that's also what, uh, you know, that's what makes you groovy. Right. You can't know. It's no fun. We talked about this before. It's no fun if if you can't be bold and be yourself and and be creative. That's like what who were the other students there? He didn't mention them. You know, as much as there's tension. Right. You want somebody who's paying attention. It's like Dr. Schrieber from then, you know, I called him like 30 years later and, and I said, do you remember? And he's like, of course I remember. <laughs> <laughs> he's like, nobody forgets you. That would have been uncomfortable for the professors, I bet, too. It's <laughs> just like, oh, no. They ended up laughing, you know. They all liked me then, you know. It was like, it's just funny. Because I, I was really bold, more bold than I am now, if you can imagine, you know. <laughs> Until you start getting knocks, you know, and then you go, oh, wait, I better be careful, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's interesting, yeah. And by the way, oh my God, Lutherans. You know, it's like, first I become a Lutheran again, and then the first thing I'm told is I'm like 45 years old that I need to have babies because (laughs) even if I had a risk of dying or the babies had a risk of dying, Mm. that I needed to proliferate, you know, Lutheranism by having babies. I don't know when that thing got started. That's some Mormon Catholic weirdness. Right? (laughs) Sorry about that. Evangelical, uh, you know, confessional Lutherans, we were sent on that path and it was like, we were, we saw it was, 
in its own way, just as crazy as all the crap I saw in evangelicalism. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, but they're, they're the ones that seem to put out all this crap, like women can't have male friends and blah, blah, mm-hmm. blah, all this crap that was just like evangelicals, you know? So, I mean. Well, and what's worse about it is that at least in evangelicalism, what I always liked about it, I mean, there's a lot of downside, but the up, upside was they respected us. They said, you know, do you, do you want to be a Calvinist or a, a, an Arminian? Do you do you think that there's like the pre-tribulation rapture or is it the mid? I mean, sometimes the questions were silly, but you were allowed to kind of have a, an answer, even as a young woman. So you know, my- but but when we say but, but with Lutherans, we have the same kind of weirdness, but we're so proud of ourselves for not being evangelicals that we don't see the absurdity of how we're actually worse at it sometimes because there's only one voice. There's only like one interpretation. So we don't even get to argue about this. Like the quiverful, you've got to have eight babies. Like that's literally what the Protestants, did you ever see the, the meaning of life? Look at them bloody Catholics filling the bloody world up with bloody people. They can't afford to bloody feed. What are we there? Protestant and fiercely proud of it. Why do they have so many children? Because every time they have sexual intercourse, they have to have a baby. But it's the same with us, Harry. What do you mean? Well, I mean, we've got two children and we've had sexual intercourse twice. That's not the point. We could have it any time we wanted. Really? Oh, yes. And what's more, because we don't believe in all that papist claptrap, we can take precautions. What do you mean? Lock the door? No, no. I mean, because we are members of the Protestant Reformed Church, which successfully challenged the autocratic power of the papacy in the mid-16th century, we can wear little rubber devices to prevent issue. What do you mean? I could, if I wanted, have sexual intercourse with you. Oh, yes, Harry. And, by wearing a rubber sheath over my old fella, I could ensure that when I came off, you would not be impregnated. Oh, That's what being a Protestant's all about. That's why it's the church for me. That's why it's the church for anyone who respects the individual and the individual's right to decide for him or herself. When Martin Luther nailed his protest up to the church door in 1517, he may not have realised the full significance of what he was doing. But 400 years later, thanks to him, my dear, I can wear whatever I want on my John Thomas. And Protestantism doesn't stop at the simple condom. Oh, no. I can wear French ticklers if I want. You what? French ticklers, black mambos, crocodile ribs, sheaths that are designed not only to protect, but also to enhance the stimulation of sexual congress. Have you got one? Have I got one? Uh, Well, no. But I can go down the road any time I want and walk into Harry's and hold my head up high and say in a loud, steady voice, Harry, I want you to sell me a condom. In fact, today I think I'll have a French tickler, for I am a Protestant. And I'm like, that's the fu- like, that's funny, but it's not funny anymore because these these uh, hyper confessional Lutherans, they they're they're just I don't know where they got this. Anyway, I'm sorry. C- continue. Well, they, just, yeah. they just started getting all that you know crap too. The same kind of things. I mean, I could tell you stories from evangelicalism that is just you know like once when I went to a home church here in Albuquerque when I was first getting into Christian radio and this weird home church pastor you know tried to cast the spirit of lutheranism lutheranism you know it's like this is like a some days i might go for that <laughs> I'm just kidding. well that's just it so we come back our cliff became a lutheran by the way the reason cliff came to the lutheran church is because when we were at calvary chapel i had come back here he came back here a year before me and 
I had left the Christian music industry, but then I came back to work for Calvary Chapel, Albuquerque. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's what you, it's what you do. I mean, that's, that's, that's easier to fall into. Yeah. yeah. And I'm a single woman and it's like, and I was friends with the pastor and his wife, you know, for many years and Skip Heitzig, you know, you probably yeah. heard and, um, you know, he wanted me to, cause I was the voice of Southern California. That's what he told people. Um, so I was on their station and me and Cliff met and started dating. And I started for some reason, sharing Lutheran hymns with him. And then he read Bonhoeffer, mm-hmm. which I know a lot of Lutherans have problems with. It's too bad. It's why Cliff, you know, Bonhoeffer is great. Don't trust the guys that don't like Bonhoeffer. I know. <laughs> so um, he said that he wanted, he, he's the one that said, let's go to the Lutheran church, not me. Hmm. He was like, it was the first time he'd been to the service, the liturgy, where he said it was focused on Jesus, you know? Yeah. So that's what made him want to go to Lutheran church. So we were all excited for many years. And then, man, we have been just bullied and beaten up by crazy Lutherans all along the way to yeah. the point of there was a pastor whose wife trying to drown her children in the bathtub. But we, we left the church, but we were crazy, not them. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. I would sit there watching the news in San Diego and it starts scrolling across it and it said so-and-so. And I'm like, what? Yeah. You know? There's like really unhealthy people out there. Yeah. Well, and, and you got exposed to a lot more because if you move around, I mean, you can't just walk into any old Lutheran church and expect it to be a place where you want to continue worshiping. And that was what was hard for us sometimes is because we've traveled a lot around the country, um, lived in different places, and then just trying to find, you know, the next home church. It's been, you know, it's always been a challenge. And, and you know, it's embarrassing for me because it's my kind of my profession, the history of ideas. And, and religion. And um, I felt like ever since in 1986, I ran away from school to try to, to get free from bad forms of religion. And I find myself in it <laughs> over and over again. I'm like, oh, they got me again. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you wily religious people, you got me again. And it just breaks my heart that you say that, but I know so many people that have, that have mm-hmm. said that. And so we're, we're still like, like to Cliff's, to Cliff's observation, you could see that there's something beautiful about the the way Lutheran theology works. This idea of the theology of the cross, the least, the last, and the lost, that God is coming to rescue dead dead people rather than, you know, just kind of give them an attaboy pep talk to, to perfect themselves. There's so many beautiful things about it. Um, recognizing the beauty of, of like Bach, you know, like where you've got, you've got your art, is for the glory of God, all that stuff. And yet the human beings that are in the mix have caused some of the greatest emotional pain of people. I know it's like, I almost don't know how to tell students. Like, I know you like this theology we're talking about in our class, but when you go to actually meet other human beings with the logo, you don't know, you don't know for sure if they're not going to be kind of cruel. Exactly. So our, you know, our pastor here, Warren Graff, he, uh, he like, He's everything leads all the way back, all the way for him to socialism. He was a finance guy before he became a pastor. Economics, yeah. economics. So he's like always showing me how there's socialism. But then he does say that about the Lutheran Church too, that we're like socialists because you have to toe the line. You have to stay exactly in the party line, and you have to all these rules. Just like I told you when I went on KFUO. You know, it's like there's no room for being different or creative, or mm-hmm. you know, it's like I'm not a I'm not a feminist or something i just 
I've always been a very strong, you know, woman. And I just do what I'm happy with being who I am. It has nothing, I don't care. I've never seen women as being really uh, subordinate. S- subordinate, you know. <laughs> I mean, I think it's a partnership. I don't know, you know. You, you're right. And that's, and you could be a CPA. And the pastor, the male pastor in a boardroom in some Lutheran radio, I'm not assuming this was true at KFUO, but, but we see this all the time in nonprofits and, and college, college boardrooms. People with a great deal of expertise get kind of sidelined because they're women. And I don't see that in the Bible anywhere. <laughs> or a person of color. Yeah. Oh, geez. Yeah, no kidding. That's a huge problem I have with the LCMS right mm-hmm. now. Um, Imperfect is maybe the church I grew up in with. I was taught that you don't mix theology and politics, you know, especially as a pastor, and you don't preach politics from the pulpit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's especially not heartless, arguably racist politics. Yep. So that's a lot of stuff I've seen, and it's like, you know, I'm very disillusioned with that, you know? There's actually... There's actually bonafide white nationalists that are like in the Twitter world and all this, this is one of the things we've been finding that it's, it really has risen up and um, it's not like, so what we always worried about was, Oh, don't be like, don't worry about this political correctness. You know, it's like, don't worry, you know, like you got to get your language right. No, it's actually, it goes hand in hand. Part of the reason that at least in evangelicalism, we were saying we're going to bring the gospel to the world, to all people around the world there is this kind of white nationalist element within some LCMS Lutheran circles and other conservative Lutheran circles where it's like, we don't really care about bringing the gospel to those other people. We're creating our own tribe. So that's why you're supposed to have the babies because the only, the only impact you can have is genetic. Your biological children is the only thing that matters. That's, that's a horrid worldview. That's a hundred percent opposite of what we believe. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was taught as a little girl, it's like, are, is it true that we're all children of God or is it not true? Mm-hmm. And, and if you can capture that thing that you knew as a child, you'll realize that you don't have, it, it's, it's almost, it's almost a heresy. I would say to think that the only way, the only way to have this meaning is to have it be, you're, you know, making genetic babies mm-hmm. because right. what you're saying, the whole world becomes your family in Christ. Like right. that's the We're game. Brothers and sisters in Christ. And yeah. every one of those human beings that you influence in a positive way, that's like the legacy. That's the legacy that Christians should really care about. Jesus explicitly says this. He says, my mother and my brothers, my true family are these people here with me. And that's kind of one of the reasons guys, it, if we may, like one of the reasons we've been, been on this, this thing recently is that we've been kind of feeling a little bit lonely because of some of the things you're talking about. And we started to feel like, Oh man, like lonely in the sense that we've got people to hang out with all the time and, and, and <laughs> networks with people we love. But this idea of who's like, who's the true family or who's going to like, if you're not torn to the party line, are you still, do you still have intrinsic value in our family? in our community. Right. And, uh, that's an important thing. People need that. And it's sometimes, especially in religious circles, it's so transactional, so conditional. You go for unconditional love, but you, you start to learn pretty quickly what those conditions are. And sometimes they're really petty. Oh yeah. Hey friends, when we find things that we really dig, we definitely want to share them with you. And Boondockers Welcome is one of the coolest things that we've discovered while we've been on the road. All you have to do is pay a small annual fee and then you get access to staying with folks all across the U.S. 
and we have just been completely blown away by the instant community we found and we've made lifetime friends that have gone above and beyond with their kindness and their generosity. If you go to our website, protectyournoggin.org, you'll find a link there where you can sign up and we think you'll enjoy it and you can help support the podcast at the same time. All you need is an RV or a camper with a toilet and cooking facilities and then you can stay for free all around the country. Give it a try. I don't think you'll be disappointed. And we hope you enjoy it as much as we do. We actually connected first because we were, uh, you were talking about this idea you had about kind of focusing on um, some of the value of Solomon, the wisdom tradition. Why did that occur to you? What were you thinking? Well, I've had this experience. Um, people are so into Eastern th- philosophy in the United States. I mean, more than ever. And they tend to think that Christianity is just a Western religion. First mm-hmm. So I always find that interesting. And so I'll, I'll, I've had Persian friends in Los Angeles. I did this with too, where I'll start telling them stuff that Solomon said. And they're like, oh, oh, this is like our prophets. Mm-hmm. I mean, it really strikes them and accord with them. And I think, you know, obviously growing up in Christianity, we heard some of these things. And yes, of course, you want to follow like wisdom from Solomon and people like that. But I think we've lost that in our culture. And I think that a lot of secular people think that Christians aren't very wise. Yeah. And I'm like, when I say things like to my karate teacher, I've, I keep sharing Solomon with him. He's like, I like this Solomon guy. <laughs> so, and it makes sense to him. It really mm. makes sense because it's just, you know, truth when you hear it. Yeah. And I just think it's an interesting way to introduce people to that. The scriptures aren't exactly what they thought they were. If that makes sense. No, it think, doesn't just make sense. Yeah. Keep, well, well, I was in my, in my past, it seems like a lot of times people didn't quite know what to do with Solomon. So we kind of just like pushed him off to the side and focused on maybe more of this Jesus stuff or something, you know? And, and so I think that's part of it is just not getting quite enough um, attention, you know, or focus. No, I, I when I was in, uh, I went to a Christian school from which I ran away, but um <laughs> But uh, they made me, they made us all give Valentine's cards to every girl because you're not allowed <laughs> to date. If that was, dating is a sin, kind of. So, you know, you couldn't have a romantic friend. So you had to give it to everybody. And, and the rule was you had to have a Bible verse. So I put a lot of very in, in, inappropriate uh, Song of Solomon <laughs> um, verses and <laughs> got in trouble again. I always found a way to get in trouble. But, um, but, uh, but I think you're so what, – what I was thinking, Stacey, is what Lori's saying is exactly yeah. what, we, what we decided we wanted to do with this podcast. I mean, this is, this is actually, of course, what we need to talk about because, because we grew up thinking that there are these people, like you said, martial artists, and I'm going to that person for wisdom, and I'm going to go to a physicist, and they're going to give me wisdom, and they're going to blow my mind. And then when I see it, I'm going to say, wow, this is true, and it changes the way I see things. And it's so much more mysterious and, and profound than I expected. And it's wonderful. And for some reason, at some point down the line, and it ties in with Christian music, there was like a, there was a, there was a level to it. And you weren't going to go any farther or you weren't going to hit any higher. It's like, or I could think of it as like the bowling alley. It's safe. 
It's a safe kind of spirituality. It's a safe kind of teaching. And it's probably not going to help me practically in my life. Not too much. You know, I might be a little bit more happy that I, that I didn't make as much money because I'm going to go to heaven someday. But in my day-to-day life, I'm not going to find value for my own peace. And that's why, you know, what Stacy said at the beginning of the show, she wanted to do it right. It's like, you had not been told that you could have wisdom and peace. Right, right. Well, right. what was your thing? You, that was your prayer. Yeah, when I was when I was younger, I remember you know sitting there making my bed, but I was saying, well, in the Bible it says that you know if you pray for wisdom, that you'll be granted that, and so I was like, you know, putting God to the test here. Then um, I kept praying, you know, for wisdom. I just wanted, I don't know, I just wanted. I guess I kind of felt. Uh, a little lost of like, even what do I want to do with my life or, you know, whatever. And I just need, I need more wisdom. <laughs> um, and I definitely felt that uh, I wanted, I definitely wanted peace and sort of a lot of what I, I think what I was taught, it was a lot more of the, the law. And I didn't, so of course I didn't find peace in that, you know, um, not that that doesn't have its place, but I'm just saying that, you know, the, the way Christianity was taught to me, it was almost as if it's not really about peace. It's more just about, you know, getting into heaven, um, you know, and, 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 and what you can do for God. Yeah. 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 And this is so great because I mean, a lot of our, a lot of our listeners are college age students and our conversation up to this point has really been about this that I really wanted, you know, it's just as a, as a casual thing to share with uh, those, those listeners that there are people that have had these life experiences that they have, they have kind of been wrestling both with their practical issues of life and biblical teaching or, or spiritual wisdom, whatever, uh, how you want to, however you want to put it. And that by getting it right, it actually helps you to also not be such a mess. I mean, we're all still a mess, but I like, you know, we were saying, you know, if you're, if you're a Christian artist and you're not able to be uh, honest with yourself, there is that, that disease that happens. I mean, there's like this, this lack of wellness, spiritual and emotional and your ability to investigate opera. There's like a, there's a way in which, getting into that and the, and the life changing aspects of that and how it's brought you enrichment. That's something that is, I think important for a young person to hear from you to say that that's something it's not too late to, to reinvent yourself, not too, too late to be thinking about these things in, in different ways. But when you, um, but when you think about this and you share with your, your Persian friend, for instance, what, what are some of the places are your go-tos? Cause I was joking about, <laughs> I was Valentine's. joking about Song of Solomon, although I would still say well, I think the eroticism is also important to have as well. If people think that they've got to throw that part of their lives out, that's but, a whole nother show. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, one of my favorite things, and now I, I used to be able to quote it better, but I could sort of paraphrase it. Um, where Solomon, and he does this all through Ecclesiastes and stuff, right? Where he's reflecting on life, you know, and he's like, you know, I've done this and I've done that. And, you know, I had a thousand wives and I had, <laughs> um, and it's all a chasing after the wind. And he says, but then I saw that it was good and proper for a man to eat and drink and find satisfaction in his toilsome labor under the sun. Moreover, which God gives him the ability to enjoy that. So see, I think that's such wisdom, and it goes back to vocation, that you have that freedom to find satisfaction in your toilsome labor under the sun, you know? Yeah. And maybe it's not so toilsome. 
I don't know why people don't notice that more often, but you have hit on, I think, the most profound thing. I, that's, I didn't know how you were going to answer it because that's exactly right. The, I think that Solomon's great insight is this, um, is, is this, the sageness that almost every one of us is looking for is to be able to say what you just saw and to look back at the work that we do in our life and, and how it ties to vocation. Psychologists say that happiness is about having that meaningful um, contribution. You feel satisfaction. You don't, you know, your back still might be aching, but you're, you're connected. And that, 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 that verse, and I uh, will, I'll link to the full thing because I forget yeah. which one it is too, but that ties us, this, that ties us all together. Well, that, and then also yeah. it reminds me of just recently we had interviewed an international student and hit, from his perspective, he said, especially with Americans that we often are working to survive. And, and so we'll work as long as we need to, to pay our bills or whatever. Um, but often it's just the amount of hours that we need to in order, like I said, you know, have the house, the car, whatever it is that you want. And then as soon as that part is paid for, then you stop working. But that idea of finding some sort of pleasure and enjoyment of looking at the work that you've done and seeing how, you know, God has helped bring this all about and, and, and in your actions, you are putting something out there, right? And creating something and, and then being able to stop and enjoy that for a second, I think is something we don't often do enough. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. You saw, you remember that video, the, the video hurt with Johnny Cash. Yes. My empire of dirt, you know, I mean, I think that's it. Some, it's some people see that as a really sad video and some people think of Ecclesiastes as like really, really depressing. Mm. But I think that uh, what you've, you've shown here with, with the, your wisdom about this wisdom is that if you can get past, I think what I'm hearing from you is if you can get past the, the initial sadness of something being a chasing after the wind, then there's this freedom to just flow, flow with the wind now. You know what I'm saying? Move to Hawaii. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Smile a little bit. Like it's, you're allowed to be happy. Like God doesn't need you to be bummed out. <laughs> you know, people have been asking us, why, 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 why you guys? And I want to go, why LA? Yeah. Why, why not a great place? <laughs> <laughs> like, have you seen at least pictures of Hawaii? Have you heard of Hawaii? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Right. No, because I think we go around, we go around thinking, right, God like God wants us miserable and then everything's gonna be a chore and I'm supposed to be pissed off. And then we're kind of inventing reasons we're supposed to be pissed off. I'm not saying there's not struggle. I'm saying that I think we think it's almost we're not allowed. Right. Cause that's a funny question. Why, well, why are you moving to Hawaii? Like <laughs> if you can, yeah. that's a good thing. To do. I didn't answer that. <laughs> Let me go back to my blue collar father. He yeah. Long gone. He would have been 103 this year or something. Mm. He was a world war two guy, you know, but he grew up really poor. And when I wanted to go to college, he said, uh, a degree that and a dime will get you a cup of coffee, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and there was some other line that he, that he said like that too, but it was like, yeah, it just to him, uh, he didn't value that. And so it became really important in my life. Oh, my sister said, why don't you tell people you never had a real job and you never will? And you know what? Now I could tell her I was 17 when she said that, that she's right. And I'm really glad I never had a real job. Mm-hmm. You know, because I'm an artist and I, I, and I have a husband who, you know, affords me to do all the creative things that I want to do. So I have that freedom. You know? mm-hmm. that you see this and that was like the greatest 
like one of your one of the boons of your life right one of the blessings of your life right to be able to say that that you know i that's why i got into teaching <laughs> i don't want to work in the summer <laughs> or the winters but... yeah but i do we work in the summer we're doing those things that we love yeah oh that's so great thank you so much for tying it together with that 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 wisdom and uh, yeah i think we 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 were thinking about doing that we're not sure but what one of these um days we're going to make a decision on what our next text is so we did the protect your noggin with jesus we were actually thinking protect your noggin with solomon and e- either way, that idea of the wisdom tradition and, and just concern for wisdom and then just like reality, like physics, God, like there's just reality. Sometimes we, we forget about this, that truth's, truth's on the side of goodness and beauty. You guys are the grooviest. <laughs> Thank you so much for hanging and chatting with us. Oh, it's a blast. Is there anything else that uh, we could point people to for, for the stuff that you're doing? I do have an opera that was written for me um, called Katie Luther, the opera. What? (laughs) One woman opera Uh, that you can find Katie Luther project on Facebook. I have, you know, tens of thousands of people around the world following that. Um, And it's, uh, it was written the the play originally. I have a play too. was written by Dr. Paul Schrieber, who was a retired St. Louis uh, seminary professor. I had him back in the day when I was at River Forest, and um, he wrote a one-woman play about Katie for me. I always, I read that book when I was in fifth grade called Kitty, My Rib, and I always wanted to bring her to life. Mm. But then uh, a composer from Virginia Opera wrote his own opera, one-woman opera. It's about an hour based on the story as well. What I have now, <laughs> which is pretty cool, uh, <coughs> is I have a, a singer who has sung at the Metropolitan Opera and... Uh, LA opera and all these things is she's going to sing it now for me. If people want to bring Mm -hmm. it up, I wanted to do it. We did it. We did five or four performances, five, two days in a row. that one. Um, And it it was, it's quite a feat to produce it and sing it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's a challenging piece. And it's a challenging piece. Um, It would, it would take me full time at my level of singing to, prepare it but i do have other singers who could sing it it's just that people haven't been necessarily able to pay for it yeah um but it can be done simply with a piano on stage you know a big piano i can't think of the word a grand grand piano and the one singer and costumes and just a little bit so it could be done at concordia but that's cool it's just cool how all this stuff intersects and you wouldn't necessarily have thought yeah that it would but i am uh, i'm really glad because what you you know we're just hanging out we're hanging out in between christmas and and new year's we're recording we're releasing this later but um in many ways, I think that what the great takeaway is to be open. You're open to the universe yeah. in terms of, uh, you know, what these opportunities are. And Starting you've the next it. chapter, right? As you now picking up and moving somewhere else. Reinventing yourself mm-hmm. because we have multiple vocations in life, taking everything as its own, as its own kind of uh, gift. Uh, we really appreciate your wisdom and those, those yeah. stories. And uh, we'll look forward to, uh, to staying in touch. Thank you so much. So with all that, Stacy. Peace upon peace. Uh, Thank you so much, friends, for joining us for this episode of the Protect Your Noggin podcast. 
You want to join in on the conversation? We'd love to respond to your questions or comments on a future show. You can record a message by going to protectyournoggin.org and clicking on the blue voice message button. And don't worry about getting it perfect since you'll have five minutes and a chance to preview your message before sending. You can also send an email if you're not comfortable with leaving a voice message. Please also follow us on Twitter at the PYNP and rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you found this show of any help, uh, why not share it with a friend? Until next time, peace upon peace, friends. But he said that wasn't any letter. He said I was going out of my mind. Not going out of your mind. You're slowly and systematically being driven out of your mind. Why? Why? That's because you found this letter low too much. And I, I can almost hardly see because I'm surrounded by this gorgeous sound and the orchestra and trumpets out of the balconies and it's like, yeah, it's like you went up to the seventh heaven, a clown or something. Yeah.